And let's turn to Acts chapter 14. We'll read the whole chapter. Now hear God's word. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to sac offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had applied, appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that he, they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Will you pray with me as we come to consider God's word? Our Father and our God, again, it's with grateful hearts that we come into your presence on this your day and receive this your word. Father, we praise you for revealing yourself to us. We praise you for we know that in our finiteness, in our weakness, in our humanness, in our sinfulness, there would be no way for us to comprehend all that you have revealed about your nature and your ways, unless you had revealed it. And so, Father, we would be doomed in our sin to never know you and to never be known by you. But, Father, you have spoken to us through the prophets, through the apostles, and through the words that are recorded here that have been breathed out by you. 
that are your words and that are full of living and active power. Father, we thank you for these truly are the words of life and our lives, our eternal lives, depend on them. So help us to understand this morning. Be with us, Holy Spirit, as we come to your word. And help us not only to understand, Father, but to be transformed by your word. To not only be hearers, but to become more and more doers of your word. May the words that I speak this morning and may the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're coming back today after a couple weeks to our study of the book of Acts and to chapter 14 as we continue to trace the steps of Paul and Barnabas along their first missionary journey outside of Judea and outside of Samaria as they're moving now deeper and deeper into the Roman Empire and focusing on bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations of the world beyond Israel. You remember that they were commissioned in Antioch and they went to Cyprus first and then from there up to the mainland of Asia Minor where they traveled up that treacherous, dangerous road into the mountains and came to the city of Pisidian Antioch, where we saw in chapter 13, Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Jewish synagogue there. And that sermon was met with a mixed reaction, you remember. Many of the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch believed the gospel and rejoiced in the mercy of God, and they were glorifying the Word of God. But at the same time, many of the Jewish people there in Pisidian Antioch refused to believe. And they opposed Paul and Barnabas, and they slandered them, they maligned them, and they tried to refute God's Word. They tried to refute the Gospel. And then they took it a step further and they stirred up all of the wealthy, influential people of the city against Paul and Barnabas so that they finally had to kick the dust off their sandals and leave that place and move on in order to continue to bring the gospel to other areas. And so that brings us here today to chapter 14, where Paul and Barnabas, having left Antioch, come now into the territory of Laconia, and to the city of Iconium, which is more than 80 miles, almost 85 miles to the east of where they had been in Pisidian Antioch. And when they got to Iconium, they adopted the exact same strategy as they had followed all throughout Cyprus and in Pisidian Antioch, the the habit of going to the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath in order to proclaim Jesus as the true Messiah and as the Savior of people from every nation. And as they did that, they got the same mixed response. And this was the response, in fact, that they had come to expect. Verse 1, notice, says that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But then verse 2 says that the unbelieving Jews stirred up trouble and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles with false teaching, with lies, suppressing the truth of God's Word, exchanging it for unbelieving sinful lies in order to oppose the true gospel. And as we go on in the book of Acts, as we travel further and further into this book, we're going to see that same pattern repeating itself over and over with many people who hear the gospel believing, being saved, and then many other people rejecting the gospel and opposing it very violently, very dramatically. And here's the thing, that, that, that antithesis shouldn't surprise us at all. And it certainly didn't surprise the apostles and the disciples of Jesus here in the book of Acts because their experience was that when they preached the gospel, they got this mixed response, both belief in the gospel and vehement opposition to the gospel. And that response, that mixed response, was in fact Jesus' own experience, wasn't it? When he came 
into the world telling people to repent and to believe because the kingdom of God was at hand. And this is also what Jesus taught His original disciples to expect. Don't expect that if you go out there and preach the gospel and do everything exactly right, that everybody's going to love you. That everybody's just going to appreciate everything you've had to say and that they're all going to come following after you and you're going to have big masses of followers. Now, Jesus told His disciples to expect this. In this world, you will have tribulation. The disciple is not greater than the Master. If they hated Me, you can bet that they're going to hate you also. Jesus said, I didn't come into this world to bring peace, but to bring a sword, because the Gospel is going to divide people from one another. Some will accept and others will reject it. Expect this antithesis. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up a cross to follow me. Because that's what it's going to be like as as witnesses of the gospel. People are going to persecute you. They're going to hate you. These are the kinds of things that Jesus told His disciples as He he prepared them for the ministry of the Gospel in this world. He taught them to expect tribulation and opposition and persecution because that's what He endured. That's what He faced. That's what He experienced all the way up to the cross. And the reason why is because He came into this world in order to seek and save that which is lost. That was the big problem that He came to deal with. The big problem, as we've said so many times, that humanity has is not just that people are sad and brokenhearted emotionally and psychologically or oppressed socially or politically or economically. Or impoverished physically. Those things exist. There is great brokenheartedness in this world. There is terrible oppression in this world. There is massive physical poverty in this world. And all of it is owing to the real problem. Which is the spiritual impoverishment of every single human soul in its sinfulness. Because we're all born dead in our sins and trespasses. We're all born at enmity with God. In opposition to Him, to His sovereign rule and reign, and to His holiness, and to His truth, and to His law. And so that's what Jesus came to deal with, the root problem. When the Holy God came, in the person of Jesus Christ, into this fallen world, full of lost sinners, He came knowing. He came expecting, of course... Their hatred, their opposition to Him and to His message of repentance from sin and His message of of faith and belief that He is the only way to eternal life with the Father. Jesus knew, of course He knew, that the world's hatred of God, that the world's hatred of truth would result in, in Him being despised and rejected by men and nailed to a cross. That was the whole point, wasn't it? He knew he would be despised and forsaken. And knowing that, he despised the world's shame. He endured the cross. He willingly laid down his life so that lost sinners who hated him would be saved and redeemed and given everlasting life. He he came so that the great kindness of God would lead to the repentance and salvation of a countless multitude of redeemed sinners from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, reconciling them to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so see, this ministry of reconciliation that now He's he's given to all of us as His redeemed disciples and followers, this ministry of bringing the gospel to the very ends of the earth and, and being witnesses of Jesus, this ministry was never going to be and never will be easy. Because following after Jesus means following along the same pathway of of tribulation and opposition and even persecution that He walked. 
bearing up our crosses as we testify to the saving grace of God in the cross where Jesus shed his blood to make peace between sinners and God. So, see, the ministry of the gospel is is inherently difficult and fraught with danger as people who have been saved from their sins work to bring this message of God's holiness and God's love into this world full of people who hate God, who oppose God, who suppress His truth and reject it and exchange it for lies and refuse to honor Him as God. And so the question is, well, then how do we do it? Right? How do we successfully engage in the ministry of of reconciliation and bring the message of the gospel to bear on the lives of people who don't want to hear it, who don't want to accept it, who don't want to admit that they need to be reconciled to God, who don't want to honor God and submit to His sovereign lordship over their lives and will literally fight tooth and nail to avoid admitting that He is their God. And here's the thing, sadly, tragically, the great majority of churches in America today do it entirely wrong. By far and away, the most popular approach to ministry in Christian so-called evangelical churches today depends on churches trying to, to curry the favor of lost sinners. And to cater to the preferences and the desires and the appetites and the expectations and the demands of fallen sinful people and the fallen sinful culture of this world that is defined by opposition to God and to His truth. That's the model of ministry that we're all encouraged to adopt. Try to broker some kind of peace with this world so that you can make an impact. Jesus said, I didn't, I didn't come to do that. I didn't come to make that kind of peace. Dr. David Wells from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary wrote a little book back in 1995 called The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church. And it comes down to this. It's a, it's a simple little booklet to read if you can get your hands on it from Banner of Truth Press. He notes this, he says that in adapting itself to this culture, the church is having its character and its purposes and the way it functions defined for it by people who hate God. And then he observes three primary ways in which that's happening in the modern American church. First, Churches are adapting themselves to the felt needs of people in the culture, much in the same way that businesses adapt their products to the market. And so churches are less and less likely to address the real needs of fallen sinners who are vulnerable to the everlasting wrath of God that is to come. And they are more and more likely to try to tailor their messages and their methods to the sense of personal well-being that people in this world are looking to find fulfillment in. We can help you with that. You want to feel good about yourself? We can help you with that. Second, churches are becoming more and more professionalized, which which means that ministers are being seen more and more and, and are seeing themselves more and more as Cultural specialists like, like doctors and lawyers are specialists more than they're seeing themselves as shepherds of God's flock. And so pastors are coming more and more to nurture their careers instead of nourishing their congregations with the Word of God. And they're coming more and more to prioritize managerial skills over rightly handling the word of truth. They're coming to prioritize rhetoric and storytelling over preaching and teaching. They're coming to prioritize 
fostering and, 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 and creating and cultivating engaging personalities over cultivating godly character. This is, this is why so many celebrity pastors fall. Third, Dr. Wells recognizes that as churches and ministries have become more defined by marketing concerns than than they are concerned with biblical priorities, they've become more and more entrepreneurial, which means they're always reinventing themselves, and they're always redefining their values to correspond to and to appeal to the values and the appetites of the world. And in all of these kinds of ways, the end result is that the world that hates God, that rejects and suppresses and distorts and perverts the word of God and the law of God, the world is being allowed to define the church and its teaching and its worship and its mission and its methods of doing ministry. And Dr. Wells, again, he first wrote that little pamphlet and made those observations back in 1995, and and his observations have never been more accurate than they are now, 26 years later, because nobody paid heed. Today, in Acts 14, what I want for us to dig out of this chapter and see is how... Two millennia ago, the Apostle Paul and his companion Barnabas, how they did gospel ministry in a world that hated God, that opposed His truth, and that did it violently, more violently than anybody's opposing us today in America. Because see, at the bottom line and in the final analysis, nothing's changed in the past 2,000 years that would make any bearing on how we do gospel ministry. I mean, yeah, cultures have changed in significant ways. There have been massive advancements in science and in technology. Lots has changed in terms of art and literature and music. None of it has done a single thing to address the fundamental problem of human sinfulness and enmity and alienation from God. None of it. And even though human beings living in the year 2021 know a lot more about the way that the physical universe works than they did in Paul's day, we've not changed at all in terms of how we understand God and how we understand the human soul and sin, and the way in which we can be redeemed and reconciled to God. There's been zero progress in terms of mankind finding a a source of power or a source of wisdom somewhere in this created order that can change the sinful heart and make it right with the Holy God. The only power that can do that is the same gospel that Paul preached 2,000 years ago. And the only wisdom that reveals that power and that gospel is the Word of God that God revealed and canonized in the Bible 2,000 years ago. And in this chapter, Acts 14, we'll see that regardless of the particular cultural dynamics of Paul's day, and regardless of whether he was talking to Jews who had some understanding in their minds of the Old Testament portion of God's Word and what God had revealed about Himself there, or whether He was talking to Gentiles who had none of that, Paul's bottom line conviction was that it is the wisdom of God in His Word and the power of God in the Gospel that saves, period. And that conviction defined a number of very simple and yet absolutely essential and profound and powerful implications and ramifications for how the ministry of the gospel gets done in every time and in every place. So we're going to dive into this chapter here and we're going to extract some wonderful points of practical wisdom, six of them in all, 
from the Apostle Paul, from the Word of God about how biblical gospel ministry gets done. The first one is this. They all have to do with God, by the way. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Biblical gospel ministry has to be God-centered, not man-centered. The first one is this. Biblical gospel ministry has to be defined by an allegiance to God's truth. An uncompromising, unflagging allegiance to God's truth in His Word. Look at verses 1-7 through here of Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas get to Iconium. They head straight into the synagogue. They start preaching the gospel. The same gospel, right? That they'd preached back in chapter 13. And that Paul had been preaching for several years now over in Judea and Samaria. They didn't change a thing. They didn't, they didn't say, well, in Pisidian and Antioch, that didn't go so well. We got run out of town, so let's, let's rethink this message. Let's rethink the delivery. They did nothing different. They preached, and many people believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, verse 2 says, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So, now what? Now the whole town is... Is, is, is believing these lies. That's what's become popular. The lies, the false teaching, that's become popular. So what do we do? Did they get discouraged? Did they give up? Did they write it off and head on into the next town where they might find a more accepting audience? Where they might encounter less opposition? No. Verse 3. Starts with the word so, right? It means because, right? Because the unbelievers were poisoning people's minds with false teaching and lies, because that's what was going on, Paul and Barnabas remained for a long time, it says, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Where was their confidence? Was it in their ability to to persuade people? Was their confidence in, in their ability to adopt strategies, to adapt the message and their approach to the culture and the dynamics that they faced and make it all more palatable? No. Their absolute and full confidence rested entirely in the Word of God, in the truth of God, and in the God whose Word it is. All Scripture is is breathed out by God, Paul would say, right? To his disciple Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. The word breathed out is that great Greek word theopneustos. Literally, God has breathed out these words in in the Bible, and so... They are life-giving words. Timothy was a young pastor. He'd been discipled and equipped for ministry by Paul. And the letter that Paul wrote to him there, which we have as the book of 2 Timothy, that's the last letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament. And he wrote it very near to the end of his life when he knew that persecution was finally going to kill him. He knew that his time in this world was quickly coming to a close. And he knew that men like Timothy were going to have to carry the baton now of gospel ministry on after Paul died. And so, what do you say to a guy like Timothy? I've been doing this for years and they're, they're going to kill me now. There's no way out of this one. So I want you to carry on in my stead. What do you, how, do you tell, how do you tell him how to carry on? The main thing that Paul needs to emphasize to Timothy, above everything else, and that Timothy has got to get as a young pastor ministering the gospel in the Roman Empire, where he will face all the same tribulations and oppositions and persecutions that Paul faced, now Paul, suffering for the last time in prison where he would die, in encouraging Timothy to carry on this ministry of the gospel, emphasizes first and emphasizes foremost the purity and the veracity and the power of the Word of God. 
Safeguard it, he says to Timothy. Treat it like the most precious treasure that there is, because that's what it is. Be confident of its God-given authority and power, Paul says to Timothy, and, and preach it. That's what you do. You get out there and you preach it, and you preach it in season, and you preach it out of season, Paul says. What's that mean? He means when it's popular, preach it. When it's unpopular, when it's out of season, when it seems to you like it's bearing no fruit at all, what do you do? You preach it. And you leave the fruit to God. See, he urges Timothy to treasure and prize and preach the Word of God because it is the very breath of God. The breath that God breathed out on the dirt of the ground in Eden when He fashioned Adam out of the dirt and then breathed life into him and and Adam became a nefesh chayah, a a living soul. That's That's the breath of God. That's why Paul uses this word breath, theopneustos in 2 Timothy 3. Timothy, in every circumstance, at all times, no matter what you're facing, no matter how hard the opposition is, be confident in the living, active power of the Word of God. It is the breath of God that brings life. Never compromise. Never doubt. Never succumb to the temptation to rely on some other wisdom, some other power, some other strategy, some other means to try to convince people, to try to affect them emotionally and get them to follow you. Never be confident in anything other than God's power in and through God's holy word. And here in Acts 14, which is of course closer to the beginning of Paul's ministry, that's exactly what we see him doing. Well, people are opposing the word of God. People are opposing the gospel. People are spreading false teaching. They're spreading lies. They're popularizing myths and lies. And speaking them in a way that is winsome and that is getting all the people in the, in the city to, to believe the lies, then we just need to stay here longer. We just need to preach the word more. And we need to let God work through it to open blind eyes and to raise the spiritually dead and to redeem lost sinners. And when they did that, when they leaned on God's wisdom and God's power in the Word of God, and not on their own understanding, not in their own abilities, when they got out, of, got out of God's way and let God's Word do its thing, and simply assumed the role of, of conduits to bring the Word of God into the ears of people, then God worked, didn't He? He worked powerfully. He worked miraculously. Many people believed. Signs and wonders were done. And at the same time, verse 4 says, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some sided with the apostles. And that didn't cause them to say, we need to adopt a new strategy. We need to lean on a new power. They maintained their allegiance to the Word of God. Verse 5 through 7 says that there was this other wicked conspiracy that got whipped up by the unbelievers in the city to bring harm to Paul and Barnabas. They tried to stone them to death there in Iconium. Paul and Barnabas were forced to flee to the neighboring towns of Lystra and Derbe, where verse 7 says, now they retooled, right? Now they came up with a whole new strategy, right? I mean, it, this, is, this is strike two. First in Antioch, now in Iconium. It's not going very well. We nearly got killed this time. We better try something different. No. When the gospel caused division, when their message was unpopular, when people weren't pleased with what they said, when people weren't pleased with them, when in spite of God causing supernatural signs and wonders, the unbelievers still refused to believe and tried to have them stoned to death, when all of that happened, they changed precisely nothing. 
It's not working in this culture. Worked over in Judea, but it's not working here. We better do something. Nope. The gospel is transcultural. The power of God cannot be thwarted by any power in this world, any influence in this world. Their allegiance, Paul and Barnabas, was not to their own safety. Their concern was not with pleasing people. Their concern was not being popular. Their definition of success had exactly zero, nothing to do with how positively people responded to their message. Their allegiance was to God's truth, period. Their concern was in proclaiming it boldly and proclaiming it accurately no matter what anybody thought. Success meant being faithful to that task regardless of the results. Because the results are up to God. God alone has the power to raise the dead. God alone has the power to save lost sinners. Successful ministry isn't measured in numbers of converts or in positive responses or else Paul himself was a failure and so was Jesus. Successful ministry is measured by faithful allegiance to God's word and truth, number one. And number two, successful ministry is characterized by an uncompromising reliance on God's power. They go hand in hand, of course. Allegiance to God's word first. Second, we see this one developed a little bit more in verses 8 through 10, an uncompromising reliance on God's power. When they got to the city of Lystra, it says there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, saw that he had faith to be made well. And so Paul said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began walking. Now remember... Even from Jesus' own ministry in the Gospels, whenever Jesus performed miracles like this miracle, or whenever He empowered His apostles to perform miracles, it was a manifestation of His divine power and compassion for people who were suffering physically, but it was more than that. Don't ever limit the miracles of Jesus to what He did to people physically. There was also always, always, always a greater purpose. Every time anything miraculous happened, it was always an even greater manifestation of Jesus' compassion for lost sinners who needed to be eternally redeemed. Jesus never healed just to heal physically. He healed in order to show Himself and declare Himself to be the prophesied Son of God who had come to save sinners from everlasting condemnation in hell. That was always His greater purpose. That was always His ultimate agenda. Yeah, He had love and compassion for people who were struggling and suffering from physical afflictions. And He had a greater concern far greater for their eternal souls. And so ultimately, the miracles that Jesus performed, they were this potent display of the love and the power of the only true God and the only one who can truly save. The only way to peace with the Father. And that's the way it was in Acts also. The miracles that God supernaturally empowered were never ends unto themselves. They were always means unto the greater end of people putting their faith and their trust in this all-powerful God like the crippled man did here in verses 9 and 10. So that trusting God, he might not just walk, but he might live forever and be delivered from the wrath of God and saved from his sins. So again... Biblical gospel ministry is always reliant on the sovereign, omnipotent, supernatural power of Almighty God. Gospel ministry cannot be reliant on natural powers, powers of men, powers of earth. 
It doesn't rely on winsome, engaging personalities. It doesn't rely on personal charisma and charm and good looks, thank the, thank the good Lord, or human powers of rhetoric, or being able to tell really great stories and make people laugh and make people cry. Those are powerful things in this world, right? There are earthly means of influencing people and persuading people that are extremely powerful and capable of deeply impacting people. Hollywood knows all about it, right? All, they know all about uh, the power of a, a great story. They know all about the power of good looks and charismatic personalities and good performances. Those things are powerful to make an impact on people. And all of those things are natural, earthly powers. And as powerful as they are, none of them can do anything to raise the dead. To destroy the bondage and dominion of sin and death. The best actor, the best looking actor, the most persuasive TED talker, or motivational speaker in the world, has no ability to bind the devil, right? And overcome Satan's powers of deception and destruction in this world. But God's Word does. How arrogant is it to assume or to pretend for a single second that the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ needs to depend more on our natural earthly abilities and strategies and techniques than on God's supernatural divine power to subdue Satan, to defeat death, to create new hearts, to raise people to newness of life, to redeem lost sinners through the power of His Word, through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, Paul himself says, greatest preacher ever, right? With zero equivocation, he says that his own ministry of the gospel did not depend on any earthly power or ability of his own, and that was by design. I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you. I decided to know. It was on purpose to preach nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Gospel again and again and again and again. And I was with you in weakness, He said. Fear and trembling. I was nervous all the time. I was shaken all the time. My speech, my message, they were not implausible words of wisdom. They were not a demonstration of, of anything great about me. They were a demonstration of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God's power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, Paul didn't want anyone saying, you know, I decided to go to that church in Corinth where Paul was preaching because Paul was a really great preacher. He was so funny. He told the best stories. He made me feel so good about myself. He was so charismatic. What a, he's handsome too. He's good to look at. You know, he wasn't by all historical accounts. He was not good to look at. He was short. He was squat. He was bald. He had a unibrow. He had a big hooked nose, apparently. And by Paul's own account, he was not a rhetorically polished speaker. And in fact, all of this was used against him by his opponents. When, when people tried to tell other people, don't listen to Paul, don't, don't follow Paul, follow us, they would criticize his looks, they would criticize his character. They would say, you know what, he's always nervous. He's not confident in his message. He can't string a sentence together with any kind of polish at all. And Paul would say, yeah, that's absolutely true. And praise God, because I don't want anyone leaning on my ability, my wisdom, anything good about me. I just want people to lean on the power of God. He wanted people to say that despite everything that was unimpressive about him, they believed the gospel because the power of God opened their blind eyes. And in spite of themselves and in spite of him, by God's power, they saw themselves as the shameful sinners that they were, and they turned to Jesus with grateful hearts, and they were saved from their sins, and they followed him for the rest of their lives. That's what Paul wanted. 
biblical gospel ministry is marked by an uncompromising allegiance to God's truth and word and an unflinching reliance on God's sovereign divine power to save sinners, which causes us to forsake our own natural abilities. Third, biblical gospel ministry is marked by a devotion to God's glory. A devotion to God's glory. Look at, it, look at verses 11 through 15. After the crippled guy was healed, the crowds of people were impressed. Really impressed. But in their ignorance and in their unbelief, they thought that Paul and Barnabas were the gods. And so they started shouting and hooping and hollering, These, the gods have come down in the likeness of men. They thought Barnabas was Zeus. They, they thought Paul was the embodiment of, of Hermes. I mean, they had temples to these gods in their city. So they, they ran to get the priests of these idolatrous temples, and the priests of Zeus brought out oxen to be sacrificed, brought out garlands to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas to glorify them, to elevate them. Now, I'll tell you what, these days the way that some of these so-called preachers and pastors prance around on their stages with all the lights shining down and the fog and the, in their $2,000 shoes and $200 t-shirts, crowds of people shouting their praises like they're rock stars, it feels a lot like false worship to me, doesn't it? To you, when you watch it on TV, it's disgusting. It's worldly idolatry. It's men glorifying themselves instead of glorifying the living God. Paul and Barnabas would have none of it. They were absolutely appalled by this. They literally, when they realized what was going on, they tore their garments in, in despair, in anguish, like, like people did when a great tragedy occurred. They were mortified that people in Lystra were going to glorify them. It is the prideful, sinful human flesh that craves its own glory in any measure. And self-glorification in any degree hinders, derails gospel ministry. Biblical gospel ministry forsakes self. And it is driven by an abiding passion for the glory of God, as Paul and Barnabas were here. Why are you doing this, they said. We're just men. We've got the same nature as you. There's nothing special about us. Do not be impressed with us. Biblical gospel ministry wants nothing more than for people to look past us. I pray that every Sunday. God, just get me out of your way and let people see you and your glory and your word and your son and your love and your gospel and your truth for what it is. Biblical gospel ministry wants people to look past us and become enamored with the radiance of God's holiness, the greatness of His grace and His mercy and His love. That's the only way that people are going to get saved. And so biblical gospel ministry is driven by a devotion to God's glory. And fourth, by a zeal for God's holiness. And that's something that's fallen by the wayside these days. A zeal for God's holiness. In verses 15 and 16, Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're keen for people to understand that they're not gods. They're just ordinary human beings like everybody else. And they're more keen for people to understand that the living God, whose power it was that healed this crippled man, is utterly unlike any of us human beings. Verse 15, turn from these vain things, these, these ridiculous idols, these false gods that they were so addicted to venerating and worshiping, turn from them and turn to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see how they focus people? On the transcendence of God. His otherness. How, how, how distinct He is from the creation as the Creator. And these days, that distinction is being deliberately blurred out. Because people want a God that's like them. 
That's what all the false gods are, all the idols are, right? They're, they're just amped up versions of human beings. They're like Marvel comic book superheroes. Well, they're like me, but they can do incredible things. And I can imagine myself doing incredible things. And that makes me want to be like them. See, that's how false religion works. We can all admire them. We can all, in our own finiteness and flawed humanness and sinfulness, relate to them because all of the gods of all of the pantheons of all of the false religions are all flawed. Deliberately. So that we can relate to them. But the holy God, the true God, the self-existing, triune, almighty, eternal God, who is holy, 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 he's not, he's not comfortable for us, is he? He's terrifying to finite, sinful humans. And so people downplay his holiness and his transcendence. And they try to emasculate him into an image that they're more comfortable with. You remember William Young's book, The Shack? You got a copy somewhere? Burn it. <laughs> Sold more than a million copies in its first six months of publication. Ten million copies in two years. It was used by Christians and churches far and wide to try to introduce people to God and the gospel, but it did it in a blasphemous way. It caricatured God in a blasphemous way. And it offered a heretically false version of the gospel. It's an old trick of the devil. Try to convince Christians that they can make God and his gospel more palatable, palatable to weak and wounded human beings by stripping God of all of his transcendence and all of his holiness. You won't find any faithful servants of God in the word of God doing anything like that. Certainly not the Old Testament prophets, right? Like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. Did they offer any emasculated version of God or vision of God? They pulled zero punches in showing God in all of the fullness of His glorious holiness and then demanding that sinners who are shaken in their boots repent before Him and fall upon His great mercy. And that's what Paul and Barnabas do. They've got no inclination whatsoever to reduce the true God down to the level of the, the pathetic pantheon of false gods that the Roman imagination had conjured up. It's like Isaiah 46, right? Where God mocks all the stupid, silly idols of all of the people because, because you had to carve that God out of a tree. You had, to, you, had to, you had to take tools and cut that God out of a piece of rock. And then that God's so powerful that you had to fashion, He's so powerful that then you had to pick Him up and put Him in a wagon in order to cart Him around. What kind of stupid God is this? And then God says in Isaiah 46, But I, I made the trees! I made the rocks! God is utterly different. And he says, no one has to carry me, right? And that leads right into the fifth characteristic of biblical gospel ministry. This one true, majestic, eternal, glorious, transcendent, holy God is also kind to the finite, weak, sinful humans who have gone astray from him. Biblical gospel ministry is not only zealous for God's holiness, it is committed to demonstrating and to proclaiming God's kindness. There in Isaiah 46, God mocks the ridiculous idols that the people carved and, 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 and dragged around in wagons. And he declares himself to be not only the God who created the trees, but also the God who carries his people. See the contrast? You have to carry your gods. I carry you. I bear your burdens for you. Here, in verse 16 of Acts 14, Paul proclaims that the great, transcendent, holy creator of heaven and earth in the past allowed the sinful nations to walk in their own ways, to do what seemed right in their own eyes, to carry on in their sinful idolatry and immorality. But even then, he says, he didn't leave himself without witness, Paul says. He testified to his own kindness because he did good by sending rain 
by causing good, fruitful blessings to come upon people, crops to grow, food to be born of the earth, regardless of the fact that in their sin they despised Him and they denied Him. God is inherently, fundamentally kind. Biblical gospel ministry is fiercely allegiant to God's truth, uncompromisingly reliant on God's power, holy and humbly devoted to God's glory, unashamedly zealous for God's holiness, and passionate to proclaim God's great kindness. Because this is how people who are, who are enslaved to sin come to be freed, come to be saved. When the living, active Word of God in the Gospel, which is supernatural divine power unto salvation, when the Word of God encounters sinful people with the divine power of the Holy Spirit who breathed it out and uses it to create new life, causing people to see God for who He is, in all of His fearsome holiness, causing them then to see their desperate sinfulness against that that contrasting relief of His holy nature and His perfect law, then becoming consumed with His great and inexplicable kindness as the God who doesn't just snuff us out, but allows us to continue to live in this world, gives us good things in this world, causes the rain to fall and and food to grow for us to eat, despite our rebellion against Him, and who in all of the fullness of His kindness and mercy and love even sent His only begotten Son to make peace between us and Himself through the blood of the cross. See, when the Holy Spirit causes people to see that, they are changed by a power that Hollywood cannot match. That great power of God revealing His awesome holiness on our terrible sinfulness and His great kindness, then that kindness, that's what leads people to repentance. As Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, causing us to turn from our sin and from all the vain things that we've idolized in our lives and to rest in Him and in His goodness and in His grace. And when you dilute that, when you remove any of those key elements or or reduce them at all, God's truth, God's power, God's glory, God's transcendent holiness, God's kindness, then you distort the gospel. And you leave people to the power of men and to the power of the world, and you deprive them of the power of God, which is the only power that can save them. It's hard. I know it's hard. In this world that despises God, despises His Word, refuses to honor Him, that wants, this world wants to believe lies because the lies are so convenient to the lusts of the flesh. And so people in this world refuse to believe that we are, all of us, as sinful as we truly are. They refuse to believe that our only hope is for the God who we hate and deny to come down and save us from ourselves and from our sin in spite of ourselves. It's hard in a world that, that militates against God in all of these things, in all of these ways. It's hard to stand up and insist on these things because people won't like you. You will be met with opposition and even persecution because the same world that hated Jesus and nailed Him to a cross and hated Paul and Barnabas for preaching the gospel, they're not going to be very fond of you. And that's why the necessary sixth and final characteristic of biblical gospel ministry is a self-forsaking commitment to God's kingdom. Whoever would come after me, Jesus said, must take up his cross to follow me. Through many tribulations... Paul and Barnabas taught these these people who did believe here in verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. True biblical gospel ministry necessarily involves an absolute commitment to God's kingdom that is willing to lay aside earthly treasures, earthly comfort, 
earthly pleasures, that is willing to forsake life itself, that is willing to endure many tribulations on the way to the entrance of the kingdom of God. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? And through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. And as Jim Elliott said, as he went to preach the gospel to the Aka Indians who killed him, he is no fool to lose what he cannot eat to lose what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. See, Paul and Barnabas said it's through, through tribulations, through many tribulations, that we must inherit the kingdom of God. And they said that after living it, didn't they? After standing firm for God's truth and relying wholly on God's power and being fully devoted to God's glory and zealously proclaiming God's holiness and then demonstrating God's great kindness... After they did it, they felt the full brunt of unbelieving opposition to the gospel and hatred of God. Because Jews from Antioch, where they'd been before, and from Iconium, where they'd been before, they learned that Paul and Barnabas are now in Lystra, still preaching this same gospel. So they all got together from those other cities, and they came to Lystra, and they whipped up a riot against Paul and Barnabas, and they persuaded the crowds to stand against them, and they stoned Paul. Not with little small rocks, but with the biggest ones that they could hold as high above their head as possible. They stoned him. And assuming they'd killed him, they dragged him outside of the city. That's what Jewish people did with dead bodies, with corpses. And they left him lying in the dirt, bleeding and broken. I mean, you can imagine how battered and bruised and bloodied Paul must have looked after enduring a full-fledged stoning that the Jews thought was a successful execution. That, by the way, is what human powers and abilities are capable of doing when driven by human sinfulness and pride. They can't save, but they can destroy. They can't create life, but they can rip it to shreds and pound it to a pulp. And so there lay Paul left for dead in the dirt outside of Lystra. And when the disciples, the the believers from Lystra, who had come to faith in the gospel, when they gathered around him, they're no doubt thinking, now what? Because they thought he's dead. But he wasn't dead. He rose up, and he went, it says, back into the city of Lystra. I mean, by earthly measurements, by earthly metrics, Paul, Paul's model of ministry, Paul's approach to ministry, it's not very successful, is it? Everywhere he went, people hate him. He's violently opposed. He's driven out of town. Now they've chased him down and stoned him nearly to death. If ever there was a time to rethink the strategy and try doing things a different way, this was it, right? But see... The calculus of the kingdom of God doesn't operate the same way at all as the pragmatic metrics of of worldly marketing and worldly success. Paul's only measure of successful gospel ministry was to remain faithfully committed to God's truth, God's power, God's glory, God's holiness, and God's kindness in the gospel in proclaiming the gospel no matter what the cost or what cross he had to bear. That's how committed to the kingdom he was. Because the cross that Jesus bore for him made it all worth it. And the eternal implications of the kingdom of God made it all worth it. Preaching the same power of God that had saved Paul's eternal soul to other lost sinners who were facing an eternity of judgment, made it all worth it. The glory of God made it all worth it. And so, he got up and he went back into Lystra. And from there, on to nearby Derby. And when they had made zero adjustments to their strategy and preached the same gospel in the same way, and many disciples had been made, they returned once again to Lystra where Paul was nearly killed. Then they went back to Iconium, 
Then they went back to Pisidian Antioch, where the Jews who had tried to kill him had come from and were. And with the divine power of the Word of God, it says they strengthened the souls of all those disciples who had come to faith in those cities and encouraged them to continue on in the faith. Which means to bear up their own crosses. To count the cost for themselves. To persevere in faithfulness no matter what the cost. Because through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. It is not health, wealth, and prosperity. Or else God is a liar in his word. So how about us? Are we seeking first the kingdom of God? which must be entered through many tribulations? Or are we addicted to the American dream? Have we counted the cost? Are we willing to bear up our crosses? Because even here now in America, the, the antithesis in the land of the free and the home of the brave, the antithesis is getting more and more obvious, isn't it? The contrast between God's truth and the world's lies, between light and darkness, is becoming clearer and clearer. Even here in the Western world that says it's all about equality and tolerance, God's truth is not tolerated. The power of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God, the message of the kindness of God, they are not tolerated. Even here, if, we, if we're determined by His grace to remain faithful to the biblical ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will have crosses to bear. But as we bear those crosses in faith and remain faithful to God in all of these ways, the end of that road is glory. <laughs> and the glory for which He is preparing us is not even worthy to be compared to any of the trials and tribulations of this world. Outweighs them all by an infinite infinite measure. And so let's pray together today for the grace that we need to have our faith strengthened to remain faithful, no matter what the cost. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do come to you with humble hearts today, and we do ask that your Holy Spirit would convict us deeply of the truth that you reveal to us in your words so that we would not be able to avoid it conveniently in order to assure ourselves that your will for us is comfort in this life. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to count the cost. Help us to be willing to bear up whatever crosses in order to remain faithful to you. Father, help your glory and your power and your holiness and your truth and your kindness and everything about you to be central to our minds and to our hearts and to our lives. That we might be faithful, that we might not compromise, that we might not stumble, that we might not be all about us, that we might not rely on our own wisdom and our own understanding, that we might get out of your way and by simply being conduits of your truth, stand back and watch the Holy Spirit redeem lost sinners. Father, build your church, and we are confident that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, Father, give us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.